0: of general in Rome one said to his soldiers who were ready to abandon him on the field of battle remember what kind of general you forsake i think to some extent the writer of hebrews reminds his audience to remember the kind of lord That they were thinking of abandoning. We know the historical backdrop of the book of Hebrews that the believers we believe were in Rome were persecuted and many of them were contemplating abandoning Christ and returning to Judaism which of course was a religion that was not persecuted at that time. And he's saying to them remember the kind of Lord that you forsake and he goes on in this epistle to portray Christ as the Son of God, the captain of our salvation and our great high priest and particularly this description of Christ as the great high priest this is a subject that engulfs the mind of the writer of Hebrews It is, in fact, the central idea in the entire book of Hebrews, the high priesthood of Jesus Christ. And you might consider running from chapter 6 to chapter 10, the very heart of the book is caught up with the theme of Christ's superiority as the great high priest. We note in chapter 6 that the writer launches a discussion into the high priesthood of Christ by talking about the priesthood in Israel generally and indicates that for one to be a priest in Israel, one had to be from the stock of his own people. One had to be an Israelite, sharing the same nature. Chapter 6 tells you the priest was required to be compassionate, to sympathize with those whom he represented. And he must also be one who was appointed by God. But in chapter 7, the emphasis on the priesthood of Christ increases. And the writer drills down on Christ's superiority as the great high priest. That he is superior to the entire Levitical priests that were in Israel. Now you and I might wonder why is there such an emphasis on priesthood. We do not deal with priests generally in the day-to-day activities of our lives. But when we talk about the priesthood and we talk about Christ as priests, we need to know that we are talking of Christ as our representative before God. As I've mentioned in the past, the priest's task was to bring the needs of his people to God. He was a representative, a go-between, a mediator. And why is it essential? It is essential because no one can approach God directly on his own. You and I may not just walk into the Prime Minister's office to have an audience with him. We've got to be introduced. And in a similar sense, we need one to introduce us, to represent us before God. And the reason we cannot go directly to God on our own, it is because of our sins. And so we need a priest. We need a representative, a go-between, a mediator. There is one mediator between God and man, the man, Christ Jesus. And so it is Christ then who mediates for us, who represents us before the Father. It is why, therefore, we need him because we cannot approach God unless we approach him through the mediator of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now Israel had mediators. They were called the priests. And they were thinking of going back to these mediators. And the writer of Hebrews is saying, Why would you think of going back? Because Jesus is a superior high priest. He is a superior representative before God. Now how does he do this? How does he explain that Christ is superior to the old covenant priests? He does it essentially in two ways, at least in verses 1 to 19. In verses 1 to 10, what he does is ingenious. It's only the mind of God who could see this connection. In verses 1 to 10, he compares the Lord Jesus Christ to Melchizedek and the Melchizedek line. Melchizedek, as I said to you, was one who appeared in Scripture without beginning or ending of days, without genealogy, without birth or death, to signal that his priesthood continues. And the writer, therefore, compares Jesus to Melchizedek to indicate that his priesthood continues. But in verses 11 to 19, he moves in a different direction in order to prove that Christ is superior to all of the mediators who had gone before. What he does now is not by comparing Jesus to Melchizedek, but by contrasting Jesus to the Levitical priests. And he says, in effect, that Jesus is entirely different in a class and category by himself, quite different from the Levitical priests. Well, this section, verses 11 to 19, in which he's contrasting Jesus to the priest of the Old Testament, to show that he's superior is where we want to anchor then this deliberation this morning. The first thing that we must note in verses 11 to 14 is that Jesus is superior to all other priests, the Levitical priests, because of their inability to secure perfection. Read with me, if you have your Bibles, in verse 11 to 14. Therefore, if perfection were through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need was there that another priest should rise according to the order of Melchizedek, and not be called according to the order of Aaron? For the priesthood being changed, of necessity there is also a change of the law. For he of whom these things are spoken belong to another tribe, from which no man has officiated at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord arose from Judah, of which tribe Moses spoke nothing concerning the priesthood. What is he saying? He's saying essentially that Jesus Christ is superior to the Levitical priest because of their inability to secure perfection. Therefore, if perfection were through the Levitical priesthood, What further need was there of another priest that should arise from the order of Melchizedek? What is he saying? He's saying then that the very fact that a thousand years before Christ was born, David in Psalm 110 and verse 4 says, God has sworn and will not relent that you are a priest from the order of Melchizedek. The very fact that a thousand years before Christ came J- J- Jesus was anticipated to be that priest according to the order of Melchizedek and the writer is indicating the only reason that the spirit of God would have revealed to David that there was going to be another priest he will come from a different line not from Aaron not from the Levites but he would come from Melchizedek it is precisely because the line of Aaron, the priests who were from the tribe of Levi, that they could not do the job. They could not bring perfection. When the writer speaks here of perfection, and this is one of the important words in the book of Hebrews, the word perfection here comes from a root word which means goal, the end, the telos. They could not bring them to God's goal. They could not bring God's people to God's intended goal. And what was his goal? His goal was eternal salvation. And so perfection in this sense referred to eternal salvation. All of the sacrifices and all of the rituals that were practiced under the old covenant, none of these were able to bring God's people to perfection or to eternal salvation. And it is precisely... Because Israel's priesthood and Israel's laws could not bring perfection, could not bring eternal salvation. It is precisely because of this that we needed an effective high priest. Someone who could do precisely what the old covenant priests could not do. And it is for that reason that it was announced that there would come another priest from another line, from the line of Melchizedek. And this priest, as we have read in the book of Hebrews, was himself perfected. If you were to go back to chapter 5 of of Hebrews, verses 8 and 9, it says, Though he was a son, yet he learned obedience by the things which he suffered, and being made perfect. He became the author of eternal salvation unto all those who obey him. Now what we have said is that suffering... Did not make Christ morally perfect because the writer of Hebrews says he's holy, he's harmless, he's undefiled, he's separate from sinners, he's already holy, but he's made perfect not morally but vocationally. He's, he's made perfect vocationally in terms of his office. And so, the term perfect now, when it relates to Christ, simply means that it qualified him, suffering qualified him to be the high priest, it reveals without a shadow of doubt that he was perfectly suited to be high priest because he demonstrated obedience to all the will of God, even in suffering. But this one is perfected. And it is he, we are told, who perfects his people. He perfects those who are being sanctified. We see that in chapter 10, verse 14. He grants them reconciliation. He brings them into a relationship with God. How do we know that Jesus Christ is greater than the Levitical priest? Because God has announced another priesthood and has announced another high priest who is Jesus Christ, separate from the line of Levite and Aaron. In verse 12, he draws the right, that is, draws a conclusion. He says that the priesthood has changed. And why has it changed? Well, it has changed because God has announced another priest and that priest is Christ. And he says, now, where there's a change of priesthood, priesthood, there is also necessity, there is also a change of the law, that is the Old Covenant law. And the reason there's a change of the Old Covenant law, it is because the priest of Israel and the law are wedded together. You cannot separate them. You may distinguish, but you cannot separate the priest from the laws. The reason that there was a priesthood in Israel was to carry out The old covenant requirements of God. And so if you change the entire priesthood, you bring a new priest in who is Christ, then you must also get rid of the old law because the law and the priest were wedded together. And so we need to understand that the old covenant and the Old Testament law was a shadow pointing to Christ. The entire mechanism of worship in the Old Testament with the priests And the various requirements, ritual requirements, the sacrifices and all of these things, they were shadows. But the reality was to be found in Christ. The entire priesthood and high priest, in all their grandeur, in all their loftiness, they were pointing to a greater high priest who was to come. And that was Jesus Christ. And so in Christ, the entire Old Testament has found its fulfillment. Because it is in Christ that there is salvation. The Mosaic law could never bring salvation. God has from the beginning of time, has one way of salvation. That way of salvation is by faith. It is the way of grace. It was never by keeping the law. The law was a schoolmaster, a taskmaster, holding us in check. So that we might long for Christ. But you see, Christ has come and issued a new age. You see, the Old Testament priests, they could not do the job. They they could not bring perfection. They could not save. But a true high priest, the great high priest has come. And with him, there's a change of the law and a change of the Old Testament priests. Now, let's be very clear. We do not take from that that the Old Testament should be excised from our Bibles. You shouldn't just go home and then Chop off half of your Bible and get rid of the Old Testament. The Old Testament is important. It is the Word of God. It is authoritative in the sense that it is God's Word always. It reveals God's nature. It tells us about God. It's like having a house. You must have a foundation. And the Old Testament is the foundation of our belief. I believe that the Ten Commandments, the Decalogue, still continues today. We're still required to love God with all our hearts and with all our soul and mind and strength. We're still required to love our neighbor as ourselves. And if we do that, it means that we must not lie or steal from them or take away their wives or be jealous about the good that they have. You see, the requirements are still there in the New Testament. But as a system, the old covenant is no longer operative because of the inadequacy of the priesthood and the commandments which the writer says were weak. These commandments were weak. In verses 13 to 14, the writer provides additional evidence that the coming of Christ brings a new priesthood, one from the order of Melchizedek, and that the old priesthood has changed. He says, for he of whom these things are spoken belonged to another tribe, from which no man has of his seat at the altar. And that, that person of whom it is spoken is Christ. He belongs to another tribe. But well, what tribe is it? For it is evident that our Lord arose from Judah. Of which tribe Moses spoke nothing concerning priesthood. So you see there's a new, a new priesthood from a different tribe. Jesus came from Judah. Moses never said that priests should come from Judah. But Christ is a high priest belonging to Melchizedek. And he comes from the line of Judah. So God has ordained Christ as a new priest. He did not descend from the tribe of Levi, but from the tribe of Judah a tribe that was previously never associated with the high priesthood. And since Jesus is the great priest, he is the great high priest of a new covenant based upon better promises. It means then that you and I, because we have in Christ a change of priesthood and a change of covenant, we have Christ who is superior to the old priesthood, and the old law or the old covenant. But Hebrews 7, 11 to 19 tells us that Jesus Christ is superior to the levical priests, not only because they were ineffective and could not bring about salvation or they could not bring about perfection, which is ultimate salvation. He tells us that Jesus is... Entirely different from the old covenant priests because of the quality of his life. More precisely, because of his indestructible life. I think that verse 16 is one of the most glorious statements in all of the New Testament. The writer says of him that he has come, this priest from the order of Melchizedek has come Not according to the law of a fleshly commandment. So not on the basis of a fleshly commandment. But according to the power of an indestructible or endless life. How is Christ superior? Well, he has replaced the old covenant priests and the old covenant. But he's superior because of the quality of his life. He possesses an indestructible life. Here is... A yawning divide between Christ and all other claimants to priesthood. First of all, he tells us the basis of Old Testament priesthood. He says it is according to the law of a fleshly commandment. And what does it mean by fleshly commandment? Very often the term flesh could refer to sin. Well, we certainly don't mean, and the writer does not mean that they were priests by a sinful commandment. What it means was, they were priests according to a physical or an external commandment. In more precise terms, the Old Testament priests came to the office of mediator because they were given a commandment regarding physical descent. That's why he calls it a fleshly commandment. The commandment that they were given to be priests related to physical descent. In other terms, for one to be a priest, a mediator under the Old Covenant, there was only one major requirement that was stipulated. What is it? You had to be from the line of Aaron. doesn't matter how godly you were. You may be a kind of person in the Old Testament who prayed 24 hours a day without stop. You may be a person who is the most holy that there ever has been among human beings. You could not be a mediator Unless you were from one tribe, the tribe of Levi, and you belonged to one family, the family of Aaron. That was what the law required. All priests had to trace their lineage to Aaron. They were priests according to a fleshly commandment, an external commandment, a commandment about their descent. But what is then the basis of Christ's priesthood? The writer says that Christ's priesthood is not based on any commandment, physical commandment, a commandment about physical descent and physical connection, about bloodline. But rather, his priesthood is based upon the power of an indestructible life. You see why Christ is greater. They had their marching orders to be priests because they belonged to Aaron. But Christ has been given the authority to be priest from God because of his indestructible life. And the term that is used here, indestructible, means endless life. That the Lord Jesus Christ lives on. And this has been a point that the writer has been at pains to emphasize throughout this chapter. He has already told us in chapter 3 in comparing Christ to Melchizedek, indicating that Christ has no beginning and no ending. His priesthood continues. Later on in chapter 7, 24 and 25 he says, but this man, referring to Jesus, because he continues forever, has an unchangeable priesthood. Wherefore he is able to save them to the utmost that come unto God by him seeing he lives, he ever lives to make intercession for them. It is precisely because Christ possesses an indestructible and endless life that he is our great high priest and superior to all priests. How do we know of Christ's indestructible life? Well, first of all, the Lord possesses indestructible life because he is the eternal Son of God. We need to recognize that Jesus Christ, when he came into the world, was God and man together. We call it the hypostatic union, the union of two natures. You see, when he, when he took on flesh and came into the world, he did not give up his godhood. He did not lose any of his properties or characteristics of God. He was still God. You know, Thomas had a, a tremendous insight when he saw the risen Jesus. He says, my Lord and my God. See, he wasn't blaspheming. He was recognizing that Jesus Christ is God. And you need to know that death on the cross did not interrupt the immortal life of the Son of God. Chapter 1 begins by telling us that he is the effulgence of the Father's glory. The very outshining of the glory of the Father. He is fully God. God of God and light of light. That all the things that are true of the Father are true of the Son. And just like the Father is infinite and immortal... So the Son of God is the King, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only wise God. And he can never die. This is the basis of his high priesthood. It's based upon a life that cannot end. As the eternal Son of God, he then possesses indestructible life. But he possesses indestructible life as the victorious saviour. It is in the resurrection from the dead that we see that Jesus Christ has a life that cannot end. Because even though he died, God would never allow his Holy One to see corruption. God raised him from the dead. And he has become the victor over death. He has ascended into heaven at the right hand of God. With both his human and divine nature intact. And as the God-man, he lives forevermore and will never die. Because he has put death to death. He has overcome death. And has the power over death and the grave. And that is the reason we ask, oh grave, where is thy sting? Oh, death, where is your victory? Because you see, Christ has been raised over the dead. And it is because then as the living Christ, a living Savior, who is a Son of God and the eternally exalted Son, that He is the indestructible Son. What I'm saying is that Christ's role as our high priest is based upon a life that does not end. And it is in This vein, armed with the power of an indestructible life, that Jesus now lives in heaven and reigns and represents us because he lives forever. And the writer goes on to prove that Christ has indestructible life. For he cites Psalm 110 again. You are a priest. And notice the emphasis. You are a priest. Forever, verse 17, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. So we've seen two things that makes Jesus that make Jesus superior to the Old Testament priests. One, he's superior because they were ineffective in bringing salvation or perfection, as the writer says, and so they, they were replaced when the time was fulfilled. Secondly, Jesus' high priesthood, is exercised on the basis of his endless life. But there's one more reason why Christ is seen to be superior in verses 11 to 19. Jesus is superior to the Levitical priests and all mediators because he has effectively brought us near to God. Because he effectively brings us near to God. The writer in verses 18 and 19 restate the point that with the coming of Christ, this new priest, this priest from the line of Melchizedek, that the law has been set aside or canceled. He says that the former commandment, that this is the law, the Old Testament covenant was weak and effective. And he says even in a more damning statement, it says it did not make anything perfect. It did not bring salvation. So the law has been replaced by a better hope. A better hope based upon better promises. A hope that is an anchor of the soul we saw in chapter 6 verse 19. Both sure and steadfast which enters the presence behind the veil. What is this better hope? Well the hope that believers have is the hope of eternal salvation. This better hope is not that we have a stronger hope. But the content of hope that is invoked here. A better hope which is the hope of eternal salvation. Now when Christ came. He brought this better hope, this hope of salvation, eternal salvation. And it is this eternal salvation that has accomplished for us direct access to God. Look at how the writer says it. For the law, in verse 19, made nothing perfect. On the other hand, there is the bringing of a better hope, that that hope of eternal salvation. And this hope of eternal salvation is that through which we draw near to God. Why? Why is Christ superior? It is because not only he has an endless life, but he has brought us near to God. He has given us salvation and granted us access to God. He has provided access. You know, the problem that we have as human beings is sin. And what sin does, it separates us from God. Throughout the Old Testament, there is a longing for the presence of God. Take the psalmist who cries out in Psalm 42. My soul thirsts for God. He compares his longing for God as one who thirsts for water. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? What you need to know is that access to God in the Old Testament was limited. It was mediated by the priests. Only the priests could go into the direct presence of God. In fact, the very tabernacle was constructed to keep people out. There's always a distance between God and his people. When Moses went up to the mountain, the people were told not to touch the mountain because God had descended upon it. When the tabernacle was built, it was built with two major compartments. There was the holy place where the priests would do their daily activities. And then there was the most holy place. And the holy place and the most holy place were divided by a curtain. It was, in fact, a no-enter sign. Nobody except the high priest. Not a little junior uh, priest, Not not a little aspiring priest. Nobody but the high priest could enter into the holy of holies. And he couldn't do it every day. He couldn't even go in there once a month. He could only go there once a year. You see, access to God's presence was limited. And that is why it is so marvelously represented in the gospel of Matthew in chapter 27. We see the events of Christ's death. That Matthew says that Christ, when he died on the cross, cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. Then behold, the veil, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And the earthquake, the, the curtain that divided the holy place on the most holy place was torn from top to bottom. It means completely destroyed. It means that there is now full unhindered access to God because of Christ's death. Why is Christ superior? Because he alone can draw us near to God. He alone can give us a true audience with God. He alone opens the way to God that we may approach this term that we have here in verse 19. That there's a bringing of a better hope through which we draw near to God. This, this, this word, draw near, is used in the Old Testament, in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the Septuagint, to refer to one who draws near in battle or one who draws near in a friendly relationship. But it is used of those who draw near to God, the priests who draw near to God. And what, is, what, what are we seeing here? What we are seeing here in chapter 7 verse 19 is that the privilege that was reserved only for the priest, that is to draw near to God, has now been given to all believers who are in Christ. That all of us, not some special class of Christians, but all Christians have direct access to God because Jesus Christ has opened a new and a living way. He's greater than every other priest. That this God who the writer of Hebrews says is a consuming fire, has opened a new way to himself through Jesus Christ and the blood of the cross. That we may come before him and not be struck down is amazing grace. And only Jesus Christ, the superior high priest, can give us that access to God. My dear friends, when we think of Jesus Christ as our superior high priest, we must rejoice in him because he alone leads us to completion or perfection. It is true that we do not live in the first century. We do not face all of the pressures that they do. We are not necessarily tempted to abandon Christ to return or turn to some other organized religion with priests. We are not all being tempted today to become Roman Catholics or Anglicans because they have priests. But we also face the temptation to abandon Christ. And to worship at our own self-made shrines. Shrines that we think will lead us to completion. Many of us have made education our God. That if we pander to it, if we sacrifice for it, we're going to come to completion. Wholeness. At of the times our carriers are the shrines at which we worship. Because the bigger and brighter our carriers, the more money we make, the more fulfilled and happy we think we will be. We may think that our families, if we do a good job in raising our families, and that's good to raise good families. But we may think that if we devote ourselves to our families, we will truly come to completion. But the writer makes it clear that there is no other path to true completion or to perfection but through Jesus Christ. You see, God has a goal for us, and his goal is that we may come to completion, to perfection, to ultimate salvation. But this completion, this wholeness, this integration of life, this completion can only be achieved through Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ in whom there is perfection, the one who is himself the very definition of perfection, has indeed opened a way. He has indeed caused us to receive salvation. He is the root to perfection. And you and I one day will stand before God totally integrated, totally complete, because we have Christ our perfect Savior. There is no perfection. There is no completion anywhere else but in Jesus Christ. You need to know that if you are truly happy, truly content, truly united in being... You must be in Christ who is our perfection. But you must also recognize, my friends, that Jesus is the superior high priest that we need. He's greater than every other priest and mediator. He has all advantage over every guide. He has the power of an indestructible life. And his endless life, Is the foundation of his endless priesthood. During the late 1960s and early 70s, the Jackson Five, that band, was in their heyday. The Jackson Five, you know, featured Michael Jackson and his brothers. Now, many of you look at me with blank face and. Probably you're too young to remember them, but those of who are older heads, remember them. You know, nobody wants to shake their head and say, yes, I agree, I know them, because you don't want the pastor to know that you're listening to the Jackson 5, but I do know you do listen to it, so you don't need to pretend. I know you know the Jackson 5. They had a song, you know, that was an interesting song. A song called, I'll Be There. I'll Be There. Let me read a little bit of the lyrics for you. Not necessarily in the order in which they were originally written. The song by the Jackson 5 says, I'll be there to comfort you, to build my world of dreams around you. I'm so glad I found you. I'll be there with a love that's strong. I'll be your strength. Whenever you need me, I'll be there. I'll be there, I'll be there to protect you with unselfish love and respect you. Just call my name and I'll be there. This is a song that is grandiose in its promises. Michael Jackson we know today isn't here. The promises that are made in this song, in an absolute sense, can never be met by man. Because you see, we are of limited duration. We are here for a moment and then we are gone. We come up in the morning like the flower, but we wither under the scorching heat. But there is only one person in the universe who has the right and the authority to say, I will be there, and it's Christ. And the reason he can say, I'll be there, is because he has the power of an endless life. I want you to hear me this morning, that Christ will be there when you're caught up in the vortex of life. When troubles come in like a flood, and your back is against the wall, and you know nowhere to turn Christ says, I will be there. And when the troubles are piling up in your marriage or with your children, and when you have heartaches at work, know that Jesus, who has the power of an indestructible life, says, I will be there. And when you feel that you're under the attack of the enemy, when Satan seems to have you at a disadvantage, when you feel that you have been outboxed and outgone by the enemy, Jesus says to you, I'll be there. And when you get old, your brain is not working too well. You begin to forget a wife with whom you have lived for 30, 40 years. You don't know where you are. Even in old age, Jesus says, I'll be there. And when you come to the River Jordan, and you must cross the channel of death, Jesus says to you, I'll be there. Because he has the power of an endless life. But at every step of the way, at every junction of life, in the years of plenty and the years of need, in the years of youth and of age, old age, Jesus is always there. He has the power of a life that will never end. And he has all the resources that you will ever need. He has all the power to defend you and to protect you and to carry you safely. He has all the grace and strength to give you when your, when, your, when your defenses are overrun by sin. He has everything that you need. He has the power of an indestructible life. And it means that you must trust him. You have a priest who will last. He will never leave you nor abandon you. You're never on your own because he has the power of an endless life. You see, my friends, you're never, ever alone. The Lord Jesus Christ is with you and will help you. You see, he is the priest that you need. He is the mediator you need because he's always there for you. And because this mediator has opened A new and a living way to God. He has granted you access to God. You must come to God. You must come to God first. In repentance. Look at what James says. He says draw near to God. And he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands you sinners and purify your hearts. You double minded. I know you may be here today and you may be unconverted. You may not be a Christian. But I want you to know that Jesus Christ gives you access to God. He gives you access to full forgiveness of sins. But you must come and when you come, you must abandon your sins. You must cleanse your hands. I want you to know that there is hope for you. There is hope of eternal life. If you will but embrace Christ, if you will repent of sin and believe in Christ, you will have full access to the throne of God. You must come to God because your high priest has given you access. You must come in praise. The psalmist says, let us come before his presence with thanksgiving. Let us shout joyfully to him with psalm. We must come to him in prayer and dependence. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace. That we may obtain mercy and find grace to help us in the time of need. You see, listen, God's throne is the throne of grace. And you are called to come with parisia, with the freedom of speech of a citizen of heaven. You're to come boldly to the throne of grace and he will give you mercy and grace to help you in the time of need. That's what your high priest gives you. Full access to God himself. And all the riches that he possess. May Jesus be gracious to you for his sake. Amen. Let's pray. O oh Lord, we need you. And we thank you that we have in Jesus. A true and great high priest. Who has made a new way for us. That we may come. We praise you that in Jesus Christ, not only do we have access, but we have the confidence that he will remain there for us, not only in this life, but in the life to come. That our sins will never condemn us because Jesus, our high priest, will remain for eternity as our surety, as our guarantor. We thank you that we are no longer under the law and the old covenant with its priesthood. But we have a priest, a new priest, who is powerful and effective to lead us to perfection. We pray that these thoughts today may remain in our hearts. For those who do not know thee, that they may be saved. And for those of us who are Christians, oh God, we pray that they may strengthen us to look unto Christ and rest on his priesthood for Jesus' sake. Amen.
1: At this time, the ushers will come forward to collect our tithes and offerings. During this time, please use this, these moments to meditate on the message just preached. <laughs> please listen to the following announcements. First of all, we we regret to inform you that Sylvia Fry's mother passed away last Tuesday night. The visitation is today at the Newidiac Funeral Home from 2 o'clock till 9 p.m. The funeral is t- is tomorrow at 10 o'clock a.m. at St. Basil's Orthodox Church. In addition, there is evening service tonight at 6.30. Please come back tonight and finish off the day in worship of the Lord and in hearing of the Word. Also, prayer meeting and Bible study, Wednesday night, 7.30, Uh, Friday night, we have College and Careers for 18 to 30-year-olds, Kids Club, and Mandarin Bible Study. For additional announcements, please read your bulletin. And at this time, let us sing of our great high priest and living Savior. Please stand with me and sing, He Lives.
2: Today he walks with me and talks with me along my narrow way. He lays See his loving care, and though my heart grows weary, I never will despair. I know that he is leading through all the stormy blast. The day of his appearing will come at last. He lives, he lives. Christ Jesus lives today. He walks with me and talks with me along life's narrow way. He lives, he lives, salvation too. So Christian, lift up your voice and sing Eternal hallelujahs to Jesus Christ our King The hope of all who seek Him The help of all who find None other is so loving So good and kind He lives Jesus lives today. He walks with me and talks with me along life's narrow way. He lives, he lives, salvation to
0: bless you and keep you. The Lord cause his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace now and forevermore. Amen.